0: Than the house itself for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. You may be seated. Let's let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we, we come this morning, we, we thank you so much for your word. God, it is it is true, it is righteous, it is perfect in, in every way. Lord, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to, to cause us, Lord, to, to grow in our faith. And we pray this morning that as we open your word, that we might see Jesus. And Lord, that we might seek to glorify him and be strengthened in who he is. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've uh, spent a number of weeks in, in the book of Hebrews and, and probably by now it's become very clear to you that the, the, the point of the book, the, the theme of the book revolves around Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, the, I would suggest that the, the theme not only of this section of scripture that we're looking at this morning, but of the entire book of Hebrews is found in verse 1 of chapter 3. As the writer writes, consider Jesus. That's what the book is about. It's a, it's a, a, a call to us to consider who Jesus Christ is. From, from the very opening verses of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 13, the author is helping his readers and, and us as well to walk uh, in a way to clear understand who Jesus Christ is. Because there's nothing that is more necessary for the Christian, and especially for Christians who are struggling, Christians who are disheartened, Christians who are given to worry, than to know Jesus as he truly is. Not as we have a tendency to think he is, or or the God that we have created in our minds, but to know Jesus as he is revealed in his word. You see, the writer to the Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is greater than anything that our hearts may desire or pursue or even those things that we might have a temptation to fear or to worry about. Now we've we've talked about uh, over the the weeks that we've been looking at this book how the the audience of this letter that they were tempted to return to Judaism. That they had endured much suffering and persecution and great hardship. And so they were tempted to to return to uh, Judaism. But the author here wants them to see that Jesus is greater than anything or anyone that came before him. Now one of the things that you may notice as you read the New Testament is that oftentimes the writers of the New Testament uh, s- clearly share the doctrines of the gospel for us to consider and to take heart. But but at other times that what they seek to do is to unpack the implications of the gospel for us to consider to show us how those doctrines have practical and powerful implications for how we live our lives. And let me suggest to you this morning that what our author is seeking to do is the second this morning. He wants us to see the implications of the gospel in our lives. Um, And I say that because if you look at chapter 3, look at the very first word of chapter 3, therefore. Now, when I was growing up in church, I was always taught that whenever you come across therefore in the scriptures, it's there for a reason. It's there to to point us back to what came before it. And and in this case, we are, are pointed back to chapter one and the superiority of Jesus Christ, that he is God himself. He is the creator, the one who rules over all things. He is the one that sustains all of creation. He is greater than even the angels. But also he is the one who shares in our humanity that the, we see the necessity of Jesus suffering to, to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf by suffering and dying on the cross in our place. And so we see this wonderful gospel doctrine and truth. And now the author says, therefore, let me tell you about the implications of these truths that I've been talking to you about. Now, the truth that we believe is not merely for confessing or defending. We do do that. We do defend the faith. We do confess the truth each Sunday morning. We affirm our faith together as we worship the Lord. But the truth of the gospel is to shape our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit increasingly into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we look like Jesus Christ. And of course, as we look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, as, as Paul talks about what the fruit of the Spirit is, we see what it looks like to have a life that looks like Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's the goal of the writer of this letter this morning. He's not merely seeking to prevent his readers from falling into apostasy, although that's partially what he wants to accomplish, what he really wants is to see them grow and mature in their faith. Uh, we, we, we see as we read on into this letter in chapter 5, uh, verse 12, that that the writer here views these Christians as weak in their faith. Uh, let me read Hebrews 5, 12. He says, For though by this time You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so he he sees that they were weak in their faith and, and struggling in their faith. And so therefore they were struggling with falling into apostasy. And so what he wanted to do was to see them being strengthened in their faith. Uh, We need to be careful not to be content just to stay where we are in our faith. It's not enough for a Christian to to merely avoid drifting into apostasy. We must seek to grow in maturity in our faith. And so the writer of this letter seeks to nurture these struggling believers in their faith. And I think, how appropriate for the times in which we live. Because for, for most of us, if not all of us, our faith is being challenged in ways that a month or so ago we couldn't have even imagined, right? And, and maybe even like these Jewish Christians, we, we have lost our way in the gospel. And uh, for them, the gospel had become only a message, a doctrine. It had become truth rather than a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, the gospel had become somewhat detached from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the same can happen with us as well. As, as we look at our faith, that we find that we just sort of drift back into maybe just a sort of a religiosity in our lives rather than truly a love and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing like difficult times to really test our faith and to, to help us to see really truly where we are placing our faith. And so I want us to share this morning three things that the author of Hebrew shares in these verses this morning. And I want us to see, first of all, that he gives these believers encouragement. Encouragement. Uh, you know, like any good pastor for his congregation This author has some difficult things to say uh, to this congregation, things that they need to hear and that they need to be challenged with. But but first of all, before he does that, I want you to notice what he says to them. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. You see, this is the first time that the writer has directly addressed these believers. And it's interesting that he chooses to call them holy brothers, and to talk about how they share in a heavenly calling. So before he seeks to apply the doctrine of Christ in their life, he wants to assure them of God's high regard for those who are his. And he wants them to see that that it, he he so he calls them holy brothers and as brothers he's identifying even himself with them he's not standing apart from them he's he he's one of them who who share with all of God's people in a heavenly calling now he recognizes that that they are wrestling in their faith and and he even has warned them before in chapter 2 and verse 3 of the dangers that they're in, when he said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So, so he's already warned them, but he also wants them to know that he's not essentially questioning their standing in Christ, but he is taking their profession at face value. And as such, he wants them to see that they are brothers, they are family He's uh, even spoken in chapter 2, verse 11, of Christ as our older brother, that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so when he calls them brothers, he's not simply saying that we're connected with each other, we're related to each other, but that we belong to Christ together. But then he also says that they are holy. They are set apart by God to be his special possession his treasured ones. And then he goes on to say, they share in a heavenly calling, a calling that has brought them out of darkness and into the light of the gospel. And this calling we see originates with God in heaven. And I think this is really important for us to see this morning. You know, so often when you ask a person about their faith in Jesus Christ, You know, oftentimes uh, they will tell you how they became a believer and how they heard the gospel and how they responded to that gospel message. Maybe they prayed a prayer or they started going to church. But, But the author here, he points them back not to what they have done in response to the gospel, but the effectual call that God does in the life of those who truly believe in him. Because there are many people who will profess to be Christians, but who have not the work of God in their lives. But for those in whom God is at work, the calling of God in their lives is one that assures them that God will complete that which he has started. Now, now what is that work that we see? Well, we see that he calls them holy, and we know that. That in Jesus Christ, that we do have a holy standing with God as we believe in him. That when God sees his children, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see our sin. All that's been washed away with the blood of Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so our standing with God is one of of holiness. But but we see also in chapter 2, verse 11... That, that the author talks about the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. And, and as God's children, he sanctifies us. He takes us and he works in our life to change us, to make our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, our thoughts to be like that of our status. Now, those two never are equal here upon this earth. We're never totally sanctified here upon this earth. But, but all of us... Have ex- who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit to change us and, and to make us like Him. And there may even been times in your walk with the Lord where you have doubted uh, your salvation. Maybe you have struggled to think, do I really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet you see the Spirit of God still working in your heart to see your sin and be broken over that sin and to Ask his forgiveness and to repent and turn back to him. And that's what he wants them to see, that they are holy, set apart, uh, sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to see what God is doing in their lives. He wants them to see that they are privileged and richly blessed people. Now, I want us to think about this just for a moment. Uh, Not only that we might be encouraged but also, as we might think, how we might encourage others in their faith as well. Um, I appreciate Ian Hamilton, uh, his suggestion that we need to take to heart the pastoral wisdom we see in this passage about how we ought to encourage one another. In other words, he says, looking at the way that this pastor deals with this congregation, you see such a pastor's heart to encourage these believers to turn back to Jesus. He doesn't beat them over the head with their wrongs, but he gently, he graciously turns them back to Jesus. And he said, we need to learn from this as Christians. Because there are some people in the church who have sort of a, the eye of a hawk. When it comes to spotting sin and failures in other people's lives. You know people like that? But but they are spiritually blind to the need God's people have for kindness and compassion and gentleness. You know, these are people who it seems like are are pointing out every shortcoming of anybody that's around them. Have you ever been around someone like that? As a matter of fact... You, if you do know people like that, you may even cringe when they come to talk to you because you know that they're probably going to come correct some portion of your theology that they think is not correct, or they're going to be talking about something you said or something you did or didn't do or should have said or whatever. And, and so you just, sort of, you just sort of cringe back. And oftentimes, it's, it's not people like that that encourage you in your faith. Actually, they dishearten you. And, and the more I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, it's interesting. We don't need people like that in the church. We already have an accuser. His name is Satan. He is the devil. He's the one that constantly accuses us before the father, pointing out our wrongs. But the father said, I'm sorry, that's covered with the blood. That's covered with the blood. And so if you have never sought out opportunities to encourage a brother or sister in Christ, I encourage you to do so. Don't criticize them. As a matter of fact, if I could be so bold, I would say, if that's what your temptation is, just keep your mouth shut. Just don't say anything. You know, now, you may say, now, wait a minute, Pastor Rick. Are you saying that we should never correct anybody? Are you saying that we should never, you know, Uh, point out to people those things that they do wrong? And and I would say, no, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, we know from Scripture that we are to do that. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes to the Galatian believers, and he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's just a big word for sin, if he's caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. So there is a sense in which, you know, we know that to restore somebody, we have to confront that sin. We have to walk with that person, call them to repentance and then and then see them turn away from that sin. But, you know, I didn't read all of that verse. Let me go back and read all of it. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So it's not beating them over the heads with their sins, but it is sort of a, a sense of, of, of gentle care to encourage them to Jesus. Paul does the same himself as he's dealing with the Corinthian church. I can't think of any church where that I think would be more frustrating than the Corinthian church. It was a church of great pride and, and, and sin and things. And there would have been many opportunities for Paul to sort of you know beat them over the head with his uh, big, thick Bible, you know? But, but he doesn't. Instead, Paul says in 2 Corinthians ten one, he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, that's the attitude by which he, he is um, correcting others. I mean, Jesus was oftentimes fierce with his enemies, but it's interesting to see how generous and kind and gentle and patient he was with his own. And I think part of that is is because the only criticism that would actually carry any weight uh, is that which mirrors the pastoral pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ who rebukes and corrects but does so without breaking the bruised reed. That's such a gentle balance that we see in our Savior. And, you know, for us, we never know how bruised someone is. I, I appreciated the comment of one person. They said, be kind to everyone you meet because you don't know what battles they're fighting. You know, see, people are really good, oftentimes, at hiding the battles that they're in. And, and so you don't see necessarily how wounded and struggling they are and if you are an unkind ungenerous harsh individual your words can injure another person's soul so whether this is as we are uh, wanting to encourage those in uh, the church fellow brothers and sisters in christ maybe it's a christian friend that we've grown up with and known for years maybe it's our own children you know that sometimes we can be too harsh with and And carry a a very strict tone with. Um, We are called to that gentleness. And especially, I would say, if you have adult children who are maybe not walking with the Lord, the temptation can be to want to, to pull them back to the Lord and maybe sometimes not to be encouraging enough. But let us be like Barnabas, who is known as the son of encouragement. And I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, You know, once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was converted, couldn't even get into the church because the church was afraid of him because he had been persecuting everyone. And who was the one that grabbed him and brought him into the church and said to the church, it's okay. The Lord has worked mightily in this man's heart and that is Barnabas. And let us be like Barnabas as we encourage others. The second thing that we see... Here is is the challenge that he gives to these believers at the end of verse one. He says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You know, he, he uses a very particular word here when he says this translated consider. It means to consider carefully and thoughtfully. In in other words, don't think about Jesus casually or flippantly or or just even in generalities, but apply your heart and your mind to know him. Not just to know about him, but, but to know Jesus. Let him be the treasure of your heart above all other treasures. Now, we oftentimes know those things that we treasure the most, don't we? I mean, isn't, uh, don't we oftentimes spend a lot of our time and our conversations and things and those things that we treasured? Maybe you've had a hobby, something that you like to do very much. And, and, and when you find that hobby, it's funny, you, you try to understand everything there is to know about that hobby, even in its nuances. You dedicate time to it. You study the hobby. You find other people to hang out with that also like to participate in that hobby. You watch YouTube videos about it. Uh, sometimes you become obsessed with your hobby. So much so that maybe you're talking about it all the time. And, and people uh, know what it is that you love. As a matter of fact, they know if you're going to come up and you're going to talk to them, maybe after church or something, they know exactly what you're going to talk about because you're so obsessed with this thing that you love so much. Well, my question is is Have you ever met Christians who are so absorbed and obsessed with Jesus Christ that they make you feel uncomfortable? Have you ever been around Christians like that? You know, maybe you're out with these believers and they're going up to everybody and saying things like, Do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? and and they're just very bold just the, the waitress the you know the the attendant at the gas station you know whoever it might be they're just talking to everybody and 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 they make you feel very uncomfortable because really what they are doing is is they are exposing how little we actually treasure our savior it's not that they're extraordinary people but they have considered Jesus carefully They have applied their hearts and their minds to know him. They're they're not casual in their reading of the scriptures. You know, they don't just read their Bible because, you know, I ought to read my Bible every day and I've had my devotions and I could check that off my to-do list. They read the scriptures because they know Jesus. They can see him more for who he is. When they pray to him, it's not just a casual prayer. It's not just like, okay, I need to pray for these things. I should pray for these things. But as I get to pray, I get to talk with, I get to communicate with my Savior. You see, the writer is deeply conscious of the sad spiritual state of his readers. And he realizes that that sad spiritual state is due to a failure for them to consider Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that if they do consider Jesus that all their struggles are going to go away. But But the place where you fix your eyes is where you'll go. The place where you fix your eyes is where you'll go. Um, I remember when I was um, preparing to take my motorcycle exam, to get my motorcycle license, I I had uh, pretty much prepared for the whole driving test. There was only one part that I was having trouble with, and that is weaving through those cones. And I had practiced for hours. Actually, I had practiced for days and hours. And I just could not get through those cones. I always would run over them. And so finally, I, I turned to my son who had his motorcycle license. And I said, Nathan, how do you do this? I just can't get this down. And he, he told me, he says, Dad, where do you fix your eyes? And I said, well, I look at the cones. And he goes, well, where you fix your eyes is where your motorcycle is going to go. So if you look at the cones, you're going to hit the cones. He says, so what you need to do is you need to fix your eyes at a point beyond the cones on a tree or a pole or a stein or, or something, a house, and look at that and don't even look at the cones and just drive through them. And believe it or not, it works. It works, but... You know, it's like that for the Christian too as well. The place where we fix our eyes is where our heart will go. That's why we must consider Jesus. Considering Jesus and his preciousness, his grace, his glory, his power, his majesty, his tenderness, his kindness, his holiness, his thoughtfulness, his long-suffering, his patience, his sovereignty, his dominion. All of those things, as we think about those things, it brings the perspective that we need into our lives. Not just thinking of Jesus in generalities, but really thinking about him in, his, in the specifics and the nuances of his character. You see, it's one of Satan's strategies to get us so absorbed in our circumstances that we take our eyes off of Jesus. I mean, think about it this week. How much this week have you considered Jesus? Satan wants to do everything he can for us to think about anything and everything else but Jesus. He wants us to have our minds set upon COVID-19 or unemployment or can I get toilet paper when I need it or enough food or or broken relationships sort of what I have, or, or quarrels that you've had with your neighbor. He wants you to think about all those things rather than thinking about Jesus. Sort of reminds you of the illustration in Matthew's gospel in the 14th chapter. And the disciples are, are in a boat and they're out to sea and they're in the middle of a storm and Jesus is on the land. And he sees his disciples struggling out there in this tiny little boat in in all this wind and waves and so Jesus walks out to them on the water of course they see him and they're terrified because they're like this is a ghost and so they finally recognize you know who he is and and Peter says Jesus if that's you tell me to come to you and I will and so Jesus says come and so Peter steps out of the boat and guess what he's actually walking on water and and he's doing just fine until then he begins to look at the storm all around him, and he begins to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. And the writer here is telling these struggling Christians to take their eyes off their circumstances and to consider Jesus. He tells them to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what is an apostle? Apostle is simply one sent by God it's, it's a messenger. It's, it's someone sent to, to represent God before men, to, to speak for God and to act on his behalf. And, and Jesus, in talking to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 21, told his disciples, he goes, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so Jesus is the, the, the one sent by God, now, we know that God has sent many servants throughout time, many prophets to come and to be his mouthpieces. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, we, we looked at this a number of weeks ago, and we, we saw it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That Jesus has come to represent God to his people. But Jesus also is a high priest. He also represents men before God as well and offers a sacrifice for their sins. So Jesus is the high priest, has paid the penalty for our sin and appeased God's wrath, but he also understands our humanity and prays on our behalf as we struggle in this world. So the writer tells us to consider him, consider Jesus who represents God to his people and his people to God. Now isn't it true that so many of our struggles in life are because we do not sufficiently consider Jesus carefully and thoughtfully. And so let us consider Jesus the lifeblood of the Christian life. That brings us to our our third point, and that, that is the contrast that the author talks about in verses two through six. And the contrast is between Moses and Jesus. But before contrasting them, in verse 2, he actually talks about how they're similar. He said, he's talking about Jesus. And he said, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, that is to God the Father, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, um, understand here that as he's using that term God's house here in this passage, it's referring to God's people. Um, in verse six, the author says, "And we are his house." So he's talking about the people of God when he's talking about a house. but but what he's saying in verse two is is that Jesus is compared with the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, um, Judaism's greatest um, priestly figure. Now you may not think of Moses as being a priest. You might think of him more as being a prophet, sort of like Christ was an apostle. He was a messenger, so was Moses. But there was a sense in which Moses also held a priestly function as well. If you remember, there was a number of times when God was going to strike out his people, wipe out his people, and what did Moses do? He interceded on behalf of the people, and stood between the people. And God and pleaded their case. And so we see here that both Christ and Moses were both faithful messengers and and priests. But he goes on in verse 3 and he shows us that actually Jesus is greater than Moses. While he might have been faithful like Moses, he's actually greater. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. I mean, if you think about it, you might drive through the neighborhood and you might look at houses and you might just adore houses. You might say, wow, that's a cool looking house. Look at that. You see the the structure of how they they built that? That just looks so great. But you don't give glory to the house. You give glory to the builder, the one who, who built the house. And that's what he's saying here as he thinks about the differences between Moses and Jesus, he said there's really three ways that they are different. And I'm just going to really just mention these, just list them out. First of all, Moses is just part of the house. He's just part of the people of God. Whereas Jesus is seen as the builder of God's people. Um, it reminds us of Matthew 16:18, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, also, we see in verse 5, that Moses was seen merely as a servant to do God's will, whereas in verse six that Jesus is the son that's a different status that's a different uh, a place and 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 not only that but in verse five we see that Moses was a servant in the house or in the midst of God's people, whereas Jesus was over the house and and it just reminds us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And so, in those ways, what what the author here is saying is, look, don't go back to to Judaism. In every way, Jesus is is greater than Moses. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 5, you see that Moses pointed forward to Jesus. Look at verse 5. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken... Later, in other words, um, it's not that Moses' ministry and Jesus' ministry were in conflict with each other. Actually, Moses' ministry was part of what Jesus was doing. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. the The law given to Moses pointed to Jesus, and Jesus is that fulfillment of the law. Uh, remember what Jesus said in Matthew five: seventeen on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law." Or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in John chapter 5, Jesus, in talking with the Pharisees, he explains that Moses had foretold his ministry and directed people to trust him. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees John 5:45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you: Moses. On whom you have set your hope, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You see, Moses presents Israel with pictures and types of the Messiah to come that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, in in essence, the writer is trying to say, look, if Moses were writing to you guys as Jewish Christians. He, he would tell you to hold fast your faith in Jesus Christ because to return to him is just merely a shadow of the fulfillment of what Christ has done. Christ is superior and so trust in him. Now as we come to the end of this passage, what's striking is that he could have ended at the beginning of verse 6 where he says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. But instead, um, the writer goes on, and he says, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. And we are his people, if you might wanna say, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and a hope. He's already called them holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, but he doesn't want them to presume that all is well with them. He he wants them to see that all is well with them and, and also with us if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now notice it's interesting that the writer himself includes himself in this statement. He says, if indeed we hold fast. You see, he understood even as a pastor, the need for him to persevere in his faith as well. He doesn't write as one who's domineering over those under his care. He recognizes that continuation of faith in a person's life is a test of the reality of God's saving work in that person's life. It's not that one is saved and then can be lost, but rather if they are saved... They will show evidence of that salvation in going on and not turning back. And, and you know, it's, it's fine for us to, you know, ask somebody, hey, tell me your testimony. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And you can say, well, you know, 50 years ago, the Lord saved me. And we might give them the details of, of what that looked like. But the question that we must ask ourselves is, but what about today? Are you going on with Christ? Are you persevering with Christ? Are you holding fast to Christ? He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, what is the Christian's confidence and boasting? It is Jesus. Jesus. It's who he is and and what he's done. We have nothing else to boast in. You know, we, we could take time to make a mental list of all the good things that we have done. And I would guarantee you that if you think about that very carefully, you would come to realize that any goodness that you see in your life comes only as a result of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because of anything that you have done. So let us go on. Let us continue in the faith considering Jesus. This is a truth that's for all believers around the world, be it Christians suffering persecution in the Middle East or, or Africa, Christians uh, suffering the horrors of war, Christians facing the uncertainty of life in America in 2020. The antidote is the same. Consider Jesus carefully and thoughtfully. He is the pearl of great price, the most costly of all treasures. Jonathan Edwards, the the great New England theologian, was absolutely right when he said, true religion in great part consists in holy affection for Jesus Christ. The true religion consists in holy affection for Jesus Christ. Isn't that our greatest need? For the Holy Spirit to affect us with Jesus so that the gospel is not merely a long list of truths, but a relationship with one that we have fallen in love with. And we have fallen in love with him Because he first loved us. Consider Jesus this morning and see how great he is. Please bow your heads if you would for a moment of silence and meditation.